It'd be good if you could open the Bible, please, to uh, Genesis chapter two. Today we're looking at the first job. What was your first job? It's a fairly good question to get a conversation going. My first job was a part-time job when I was still at school. If you lived in George's Hall or Bass Hill back in the, no the late 80s and received a newspaper thrown in the direction of your front door, that was me. My first job was delivering 400 newspapers to 400 houses on Wednesday afternoons. I had a wooden box on the back of my bike and it could fit approximately about 80 rolled up newspapers in it. And so I'd get home, home from school and load up the bike and off I'd go. I'd deliver the first 80, ride back home, load up the box again and again and again and again and it took several hours. And for delivering 400 newspapers I, I got $4. The papers were delivered to our house, unrolled, a flat pile of papers with a bag of elastic bands and my mum would start rolling them when they arrived so that a box was ready to go as soon as I got home from school. And uh, then she'd just keep rolling all afternoon so that they weren't ready for me to deliver and I suppose I should have shared my $4.50 with her. But this morning we're considering what the Bible says about the first job which we read about in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. But also this morning we're going to consider the, uh, uh, the broader topic of uh, work in general for a couple of reasons. We do spend a lot of time at work or in work-related activities, times, time which does constitute a large proportion of our life. For many of us, anywhere between 40 to 75% of our life is spent at work or in work-related tasks. And unfortunately, many Christians see very little value in their work. It's to them a necessary evil. It's required to earn the money so we can put bread on the table and clothes on our back and a roof over our head. It's the thing we do Monday to Friday between serving the Lord. Many Christians are fairly bored with their work. They don't see any lasting value in it and they're increasingly frustrated by it. And consequently, a dichotomy emerges between those things which we think are merely secular and those things which we believe are of spiritual value and of spiritual worth. And on the spiritual side, serving God, that's one thing. But on the secular side, our work, Monday to Friday, is something completely different, totally unrelated, with no lasting value, so it seems, to many people. And I think for these reasons, it's timely that we consider a biblical perspective of work this morning. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 tells us that God put Adam into the garden and gave him the first job that was to dress it and to keep it the Hebrew word translated dress means to work or to labor same Hebrew word is used about 280 times in the Old Testament about 75% of the time it's translated simply to serve and that word is used in a variety of contexts which include Working or labouring in service to God and working and labouring in service to others. And that's what Adam was to do. He was to work in the garden doing what God wanted him to do as a service to God, but not just for his own needs, but also for the help and blessing and benefit of others. Certainly that would involve his wife and his immediately, immediate family and then in time others as well. 
But it also says that Adam was to keep the garden. The Hebrew word translated keep means to take care of. And that Hebrew word occurs about 450 times in the Old Testament and it's used in a variety of contexts including taking care of plant life, taking care of animals, taking care of people, helping people, supporting people, guarding people and protecting people is the way that this word is used. So this is the first job, to labour in the service of God. Not just for one's own needs, but also as a service to others, helping others, assisting others, supporting others, and even guarding and protecting others. Now that's a big job. But thankfully Adam didn't have to do it alone. If you look down to verse 18, it says, And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. Then in verse 21, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, verse 22, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now what we've just read in those verses gives us some specific detail concerning something that God set back in chapter 1. Just turn back to chapter 1 and verse 26. Chapter 1 verse 26, and, the, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. In other words, as image bearers of God, God created Adam and Eve, God created man and woman, God created mankind to have dominion over all of the earth and to subdue the earth. In other words, God had given man dominion over all the animals in the sky, in the sea and on the land, over all vegetables and plant life, over all minerals. Gold and onyx stone was there for him. In other words, Man has authority from God to chop down trees and to build buildings and to domesticate animals and do a thousand other things responsibly and as good stewards. In the exercise of his dominion over the earth, every scientific and theological advance, every feat of engineering, every new discovery about the nature and function of the universe is an outworking of that dominion. And despite man's impairment because of the fall, Man has nevertheless been a mover of mountains and a builder of dams and a digger of mines and a conqueror of the planet and all of this work and all of this labour is to be done not just for our own needs but as we've said, as we've learned, it's to be done in the service of God and in the service of others, blessing them and helping them and assisting them and supporting them and we're needful guarding and protecting them. This is the work that God has given us to do. And it's good work. Why? Well, first and foremost, because God is a worker. God is a worker. The Bible opens with God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. And the first thing that we read about God is that he created the heaven and the earth. In other words, God first, appear in, first appears in scripture as a worker. 
Consider the many kinds of work that God did, the amazing kind of work that God did in forming the world. Artist, designer, strategic planner, organiser, project developer, assessor, zoologist, biologist, chemist, linguist, programmer, material specialist, engineer, just to name a few. And what sort of job did he do? Well, after the first day, what he, the job he did was good. And the second day, the job he did was good. And after six days, the work he did was very good. However, God didn't end his work with the creation of Adam and Eve. God continues to work by daily providing for all of his creatures. And daily sustaining the whole creation. And in the great work of redemption accomplished upon the cross. Mm. cross and, and the work that God continues to do in offering salvation and wooing men to trust Christ as our Savior. The, the work of the Spirit of God is, a, is, is happening even now. Convicting of sin and of righteousness of judgment. Exalting Christ. Work is a part of God's nature and character. And the fact that we have been made in the image and likeness of God means, secondly, that God created people as workers. We see that very clearly in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But Psalm 8 also gives us a glimpse of how God incorporated work into our nature too. Psalm 8, the psalmist writes in verse 3, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest him? And that question gets answered in two ways. First, the psalmist goes on to describe our identity. Who God created us to be. Next verse, verse 5. Thou hast made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honour. Then he describes not just our identity, our purpose. What it is that God created us to do. Verse 6. Thou madest him, that's us, to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under our feet. God has dominion over the whole earth, over the whole of creation. Dominion that he has delegated to us. Work, as it turns out, is part of our nature and character too. And that is why we do feel a deep sense of satisfaction when when we do a, a job well done. There is something that resonates within us when that happens. And that's because... It's part of our nature. It's the way that God has made us. We've been designed to work. We've been created to work. And we won't find satisfaction in life if we're unwilling to do what God created us to do. Thirdly, God created people to be his co-workers. God sustains life upon the earth. In him we live and move and have our being. Everything is upheld by the word of his power. But God is also pleased to use men to sustain life upon the earth. And the part that man plays in that is work. If today, if people stopped working and just sat around and did nothing, things would grind to a halt very, very quickly and in a short space of time, everyone would die. God sustains life upon the earth, but he does so by employing working people People who by virtue of their work are co-workers together with God. He is the agent, but we are his instruments. The man who builds a house plays a part 
in preserving and sustaining and enhancing life upon the earth and within our own community. The man who sells insurance contributes to the sustaining and the preserving and the enhancing of life upon the earth. Men and women who enter data into computers which keep the company running, a company which provides a service to the community, it's, it's like, they're likewise working together with God. The baker who bakes our bread, the barber who cuts our hair, the doctors and nurses who attend us when we're sick, the lollipop lady who helps children cross the road, the storeman, the teacher, the labourer, the shop assistant, the process worker, the pharmacist, the painter, the security guard. The list is endless. All these people should see themselves as being co-laborers together with God, preserving and sustaining and enhancing life upon the earth, assisting people, helping people, supporting people, guarding and protecting people. Now to these three, let's add a couple of clarifying statements. Number one, all legitimate work is an extension of God's work. Now obviously some things are sinful. And as Christians, we do not have the freedom to participate in careers or jobs that involve sinful activities. But everything else is an extension of God's work and is therefore spiritual in nature and in value. Francis Schaeffer put it this one, a quote, There are certain things which are given, given as absolutely sinful in the scripture. And these things as Christians we should not do. But everything else is spiritual. The painting of a picture, the work of a good shoemaker, the doctor, the lawyer. All these things are spiritual if they are done within the circle of what is taught in scripture. Looking to the Lord day by day for his help. The landscape designer, the building contractor, the courier, the chief executive officer. All these people have chosen employment that can be spiritual in value. When accomplished within the circle which is drawn by scripture, every vocation can be holy unto the Lord if we look to him day by day for his help. And so for the Christian, all of life is spiritual in value and in significance. And all legitimate work is an extension of God's work. Secondly, the connection between the work that we do and how it contributes to God's work is not always obvious. Let's just talk for a moment about your job. It's wonderful, even if it's terrible. Even terrible jobs help to serve people. It's very obvious if you're a waiter at a restaurant, but it is true practically of every single job that you can imagine. If you're stocking shelves at the grocery store, you're helping busy mums and dads gather food together for the needs of their family. If you're an accountant, you're helping people navigate difficult tax laws or making it possible for the company to meet payroll for people who are depending upon income. If you're flipping burgers, you're preparing someone's meal, maybe a grandmother, maybe a grandchild. Whoever it is that you are feeding is someone who's incredibly important to God. Now, would you be doing any of those things if you didn't get paid for it? Well, probably not. But that doesn't diminish the reality that you're serving people and your efforts are adding blessing and help to people's lives. And that's a very good thing. Sure, you can say, well, I'll just make stupid ice creams at Mac McDonald's. Or you can view it as doing something delightful, even merciful. 
to a seven-year-old boy who's just had a very embarrassing day on the soccer field. Or you can say, I'm just mopping a dirty floor. Or perhaps you can look at it by saying, I'm keeping this aged care facility clean because without that work in this place, there would probably be disease for these patients and they are already struggling with so many things. You can say, I'm just cleaning up manure in the horse barn. This is the worst. Or you can be aware that if you don't, the horse's hooves and even their lungs will soon suffer. So often our menial jobs are vitally important acts of mercy. Demonstrations of God's grace and love. Thirdly, because of sin, none of our work completely fulfills God's intentions. There is no doubt that God must certainly grieve when he looks at what uh, much of what looks, takes place in the marketplace and the conditions under which certain people are forced to work. But even legitimate work in a good conditions, in good conditions, still falls short on account of sin. Nothing is perfect. Everything is broken in this world. People are fallen. People are sinful. We live in a broken, sinful world. And that has a great impact upon our work, which is our next heading there. Let's think about the effect of sin on our work. Well, let's firstly make it very clear that work is not the result of sin. It's not the result of the curse. What was it that God cursed when man sinned? What was it in creation that God cursed? And one of the most stubborn myths in Western culture is that God imposed work as a curse upon Adam and Eve's sin. And as a result, a lot of people see work as being something which is intrinsically evil. The Bible doesn't support that view. The work that God gave to Adam and Eve, and therefore to all mankind, was given in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That work was assigned before sin entered into the world, before God pronounced the curse. And therefore, work is not the result of sin or the curse. Secondly, the nature of work is good, not evil. God is a worker. God is good and not evil. Therefore, work is good and not evil. If work was evil in and of itself, then God would never require people to do it. But he does. Furthermore, it is noteworthy that even in the perfect world that God originally made, work was necessary for man's good. In other words, the ideal world is not one of idleness and frolic, but one of intense activity and service. And even looking at the book of Revelation, when we think about the new heaven and the new earth, the scripture says that when all of sin is removed, when all of the curse is removed, it says that his servant shall serve him. And sometimes we joke, joke about the work that we do, or we joke about our attitude towards work. And we do... We do wish that our life could be one big long holiday. But being the kind of people that we are, God knows that we need to work. 
There's a little saying, it's not a verse of the Bible, but it is true that idleness is the devil's playground. Therefore, it is important that we learn to work and occupy ourselves productively. Some years ago, many hives of bees were brought from a cold climate to the tropical island of Barbados. Right away, the bees went to work gathering honey for the winter, which their instinct taught them to expect. However, on the tropical island, winter didn't come and the bees became lazy and they spent their time flying about stinging people. Trouble is usually produced by those who don't produce anything. Work is a very good thing. It was part of the perfection of Eden before the fall. We were made to work. And if we try to stop working before time, then we cause great problems to ourselves. And I'm serious about this. You watch documentaries about retired athletes or people who win the lottery and don't have to work another day. I thought that they could spend all day just lying on the beach. And that doesn't go well for them. It's not what we're designed for. You can't do that and thrive in life. God knows that work does us good. It's good for man to bear the yoke in his youth, it says in Lamentations 3.27. The nature of work is good and not evil. Thirdly, the nature of the curse itself shows that work is not the result of the curse. Let's have a look at Genesis chapter 3, please. Genesis 3, verse 14. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be unto thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, Thou shalt eat the herb of the field, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Notice that God cursed the ground as a result of Adam's sin, but not the work, not the task of cultivating the ground. God did not impose work as a punishment, nor did he take away the dignity and the value of work. Point D there. The perspective on work remains positive after the fall, not negative. God wants Christians to take responsibility to provide for their material needs and for the needs of their family and as a help and a blessing to others. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 states this command. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, Paul says... This we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. God has created a world of resources for this purpose. He's given us authority, along with strength and skill, to use those resources to earn our living. 
Work is a gift to us. And it's a means of supplying what we need and what others need. Now obviously there are times when grown children have to then take care of their parents or grandparents. Likewise, there are times when the church community must step in and assume some responsibility for those who are in need who can't meet their own needs. But other than that, responsibility always starts with the individual. Earlier than 2 Thessalonians, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. And Paul explains why individual has, the responsibility has to start with the individual. This is what he says. And that you may study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That ye walk honestly to them which are without. And that ye have lack of nothing. Believers who won't work, that is who beg and borrow unnecessarily or still give, send a message to the outsiders. Send a message, it's a bad message to non-Christians. They discredit Christ and the gospel. And not representing God well as image bearers of God. Now let's consider the results of our sin, of sin on our work. Firstly, sin made our work harder. Genesis 3.17 And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy work and his wife and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Before sin, before the curse, man's work was easy. Man's work was easy. Imagine being a gardener in a garden where there was no weeds. The story is told of a gardener who took pride and care in his lawn. But one year it grew full of dandelions. He tried every method, every product to get rid of them. Nothing worked. Exasperated, he wrote to the Department of Agriculture explaining all that he'd done. What shall I try next, he wrote. This is the reply. Try getting used to them. Verse 19 here talks about the sweat that would be produced, the hard work that it would take to ensure that the earth would produce its necessary food. But if you go back to chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, The Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Okay? Before sin, the food was there for them just to take and eat very freely. No hard labour required at all. But now, it's all hard work. And the result would be that man grows tired and weary in his work. It came across a little piece called, I'm tired. That's where it goes. It says, yes, I'm tired. For several years I've been blaming it on middle age. Poor blood, lack of vitamins, air pollution, water pollution, Gluten, dieting, and a dozen other maladies that make you wonder if life is really worth living. But now I find out that isn't it. It's because I'm overworked. The population of this country is 16 million. 7 million are retired. That means 9 million to do the work. There are 5 million in school, which leaves 4 million to do the work. Of this total, 1.5 million are employed by the government. That leaves 2.1 million to do the work. 
250,000 are in the armed forces, which leaves 1.85 million to do the work. Taken from that total of 1.65 million people to do the work, people uh, taken from that total, 1.65 people work for the state or the city government, that leaves 200,000 to do the work. There are 188,000 in hospital, that leaves 12,000 to do the work. There are 11,998 people in prison. That leaves two people to do the work, you and me. And you're sitting there listening to me reading this. No wonder I'm tired. And I'm sure we can all identify with the fact that there's a job that needs to be done, but we just run out of energy to do it. Or there's a job that needs to be done and we start doing it, but things go wrong and it takes a lot longer than we thought. We just run out of time. Someone said the only person to get all his work done by Friday was Robinson Crusoe. But most of us aren't so blessed. Sin has make it, made our work so much harder. Secondly, sin rendered life and its work futile. And by that I mean what it tells us in Romans chapter 8. That the whole of creation is subject to vanity. Everything is wearing out. Everything is falling apart. It doesn't matter how well it's made. Entropy reigns. Rust never sleeps. Chaos is always at work. Things tend to greater and greater disorder, which is a scientific explanation of Murphy's Law. Which tells us that if anything can go wrong, it will. If you wash your car on Saturday morning, it'll rain in the afternoon. If you go to bed early, the phone will ring. When things are going well, something will go wrong. When things just couldn't possibly get any worse, they will. And when things appear to be going better, it's because you've overlooked something. And at the checkout, the other line is always faster. There's something very obviously wrong with our world. It's always uphill and into the wind. Think about people who spend years developing a, a motor car, a particular model of motor car, and today it doesn't even exist. All their hard work gone. Think about people who work in technology, particularly computers. Programmers spend years working on software program and within 12 months it's obsolete. $5,000 program now in the bargain bin for $5 must leave them feeling empty, a feeling of futility. When our children were growing up, we had a computer program at our home. Actually, it was, a, it, was an, it was an encyclopedia, and it had a video clip of a demolition, a 20-story building. It would have taken years to plan and to build, reduced to rubble in about seven seconds. Think about a company that people put their lives into, perhaps a family business, two or maybe even three generations. Goes broke. Sin has made our lives and our world corruptible. In fact... It is also a fact that all legitimate work still does have intrinsic value in God's economy. Even those things that become obsolete, all that effort still has value in God's economy, but it takes a renewed mind to be at peace with such hope. Point C, sin affects our fellow workers and the system. When I left school, I worked for about five years as a mechanic in a workshop situation. Every day I would go to an environment that was affected by sin. It was a spiritual battle. 
And when it came time for me to leave, the one thing that I was looking forward to was getting out of that situation where people were just swearing constantly. And guess what? Well, the next situation was much the same. And the one after that wasn't much different either. And I made a disappointing discovery. That's basically the way it is out there. Sin affects our fellow workers and the system. One author wrote the following. It says, my friend was a partner with two others in the development project of apartments. When it came time to apply for the final funding of the project, the partners met at the bank. According to the terms of the bank, they would need contracts written on the final six apartments in order to secure the loan. However, my friend knew that they did not have those contracts. While the three part partners waited in the office, the loan office lobby, my friend asked how they were going to obtain the loan without those contracts. His two partners smiled and explained that they'd written up bogus agreements with relatives and in-laws. Agreements that they would tear up as soon as the loan went through. And before my friend could respond, the loan officer arrived and invited them into his office. People tell lies. People lie on their loan applications. People lie on their resumes. People shortchange their clients. People rip off the government. People stab each other in the back in ambitious power plays. One statistic I read said that American street crime costs the, costs the country about $4 billion a year, whilst white-collar crime costs about $40 billion a year. This sort of thing is going on all the time. And as Christian, we need to be very, very wary not to get caught up in all of that. It's very easy to get swept along in the system, which is a sinful system. Work started out in the garden and has ended up in a jungle. And it's pretty fierce out there in the corporate jungle. And as Christians, we need to remember that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the King of the jungle. And if we want to prevail over the tragic consequences of sin upon our work, we need to serve the Lord as King. And that brings us to our final heading. Let's think about the effects of salvation on work. Now, I'm not sure what you'd be expecting under a heading like that. And I hope I don't disappoint you to point out that Christ's death on the cross, the gospel, doesn't change work. So let's turn over to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans tells us that Jesus died upon the cross and rose again. He conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered hell, he conquered the devil. And the implications of that are such that the effects of sin will be completely reversed, although such reversal is not immediate. Jesus was and is victorious, but the full implications of that victory are yet to be realised. Let me just try to illustrate the situation this way. Think back to the end of World War II. In Germany, the Allied troops eventually fought their way to Berlin and surrounded it. In his bunker, Hitler realised that all was lost and committed suicide. Was the war over, yes or no? Well, yes, in the sense that the enemy was defeated, but no, in the sense there was still a lot of mopping up to be done. Think about the dropping of the atomic bomb on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay. It, was, it was over after that, and yet there was still work to be done. 
In a similar way, Jesus' death and resurrection was a death blow to sin and Satan. That victory has an assured outcome. The ultimate triumph of God over evil. And yet, the conflict rages on. For though the enemy has been dealt a deadly blow, Satan and his followers continue in their military campaigns against the people of Christ. Unless we become discouraged in all that, Romans chapter 8 here has for our instruction and our edification, it says in verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and traveleth in pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also. Which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan, even ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to with the redemption of our bodies. Now we can say a lot about this passage. But the thing I want you to notice now is that the creation is still waiting to be released from its subjection to vanity. When the Lord Jesus Christ shall return and when he does set up his millennial kingdom upon the earth, the curse will be removed majorly initially, but completely ultimately. And creation will be restored to the way that God intended it to be. And until then, the effects of sin remain in effect. Point one, the work environment remains unproductive. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you'll be exempt from difficulties in the workplace. Being saved won't stop you getting RSI. Being saved won't stop you being released when the company downsizes. Being saved won't automatically exempt you from losing a sale or losing a shipment or seeing the office burn to the ground or having your computer hard disk crash or having your top salesperson go work for the opposition. Being a Christian won't mean that your customers pay their bills on time. Secondly, our work is still marked by futility. The fact that you're a Christian builder doesn't mean that white ants won't eat your house. The fact that you're a Christian cashier won't mean that you'll always give the right change. Just because you're a Christian plumber doesn't mean your pipes won't get blocked. Just because you're a Christian doctor doesn't mean your diagnosis is going to be right every single time. Doesn't mean your patients will never die. Just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean that you'll win every case. We're still part of a world which is cursed by sin and subject to corruption. Thirdly, people are still sinful. While I was working in a Christian bookshop, Christian bookshop, a man came in and told me a very convincing story about uh, adverse circumstances in his life and trials he was going through. It was very, very convincing. And he asked me if I could lend, lend him some money to help him out. And uh, I was pleased to lend it to him to help him out. But when he didn't pay back, I found out that he was a, a liar and a deceiver and I got burned. And it happened in the workplace. 
people are still sinful. Years ago when the, uh, the neighbour's house was up for sale, the uh, estate agent that was looking after it told at least one prospective buyer that the house was up for sale because the husband and wife were getting a divorce, hoping that might clinch the deal because it wasn't anywhere near the truth. People are still sinful. And finally, Christ's death changes the worker. Christ's death changes the worker. You see, work is not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. And only Christ is adequate to deal with sin. And his strategy in dealing with sin and its impact upon the world is not to remove us out of the world, not to remove us from that kind of work situation, but rather to transform us and make us adequate to live lives of the glory of God in our work situation to his honour and praise. God transforms us by transforming our mind. And the renewed mind knows that Christ is Lord over all of life and that means he's Lord over our work as well. And the renewed mind knows that the Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us to live and work with Christ's likeness. And the renewed mind knows that God values our work even if the product itself is of no eternal value. Work done in the Lord's name, work done for the Lord's sake has eternal value and significance and will be rewarded ultimately. Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. I pray not that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil. Phillips Brooks said, I do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be strong men and women. Do not pray for tasks for task equal to your powers Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work will be no miracle, but you shall be a miracle. Every day you shall wonder at yourself, at the richness of life which God has, which has come to you by the grace of God. Why do you go to your job? Is it only to get your paycheck? If so, that's not really reason enough. At least not according to what the Bible teaches about our work. Earning a living is important. But it's only part of God's intention for our work. Ultimately, God is calling us as his image bearers. To be like signposts pointing people towards him in the way that we go about our work. We're like signposts pointing towards his kingdom. We're not just functionaries of the world system. Through our job-related responsibilities, we have the opportunity to be servants of God, carrying out his assignments wherever he has placed us. And so therefore, may God help us, whether we eat or drink, or whatever we do, put your job in there, to do all to the glory of God. Whatever we do, put your job description in there, to do it hardly as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for we serve the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, acknowledging and uh, Lord, confessing Lord, some of the difficulties that we do have, have with our work. But uh, Lord, we are thankful for what the Bible does have to say 
about such matters. Lord, we can see that your original intention and design has been greatly affected by sin, and yet the purpose for our work remains the same. It's harder today, certainly. And even being a Christian doesn't mean it gets easier. And there's a sense in which being a Christian causes us to be even more grieved with the wrong things that we see around about us and the wrong things that are going on within the work that we're called to do. But we thank you that there is grace. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we are faithful to you, doing all to the glory of God, all as a service to God and a blessing to others, uh, Lord, I pray that this would encourage us to know that our work does have value and we are serving a, a God-ordained purpose. And the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly, ultimately. Lord, may this be encouragements for our faith today. Help us to uh, live as lights in the darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.